We have a kind of an unusual announcement about Israel. Uh, we're still going. We haven't canceled. In fact, uh, we have had so many people wanting to go that we've had a waiting list. And the waiting list seems to grow rather than diminish. And um, so we have decided to see if we could get some extra tickets. Now, the extra tickets uh, aren't all with uh, flying over there with our group. Actually, you get there earlier than we would uh, by about four or five hours. And so you get to see a little bit more. But we have now 12 openings for Israel. Uh, We've uh, gone to the standbys who wanted to get in and uh, the list, the waiting list, and we've uh, said that they could go, so uh, our waiting list is coming. But just in case at this late date uh, there would be any others who want to go to Israel, and I would recommend going if you can make it. The Lord provides the funds to do it. Uh, There's nothing like it. The Bible comes alive. It's brand new after going to Israel. And um, uh, it's a great trip. So... uh, If you'd like to come, we have 12 openings uh, available. Uh, I don't go every year. I've gone 20 times, so it's not like I've got to go back next year. I may not go back for a few more years. But uh, if you want to come this year, uh, the only catch is we have to know immediately. And uh, how do I put it nicely? You've got to cough up the cash here quickly on this thing if you want to come. So if you do, come talk to us at the information booth, and we'll put you in touch with the uh, travel agent and get you coming to Israel with us in a few weeks. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. In verse 27, Jesus continues, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her in his heart or lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Most Americans know who Abigail Van Buren is. She is affectionately known as Dear Abby. And she has been America's newspaper counselor for decades. Every now and then there's a classic quip that she comes up with. And uh, the example of that is in a letter that was written to her. Dear Abby, I am in love And I am having an affair with two different women. I can't marry them both. Please tell me what to do. But don't give me any of that morality stuff. And so she writes back in classic form, Dear Sir, the only difference between humans and animals is morality. Please write to a veterinarian. (laughs) Good for her. I'm interested in the ones who didn't clap for that. (laughs) I have performed a few unusual weddings, many unusual weddings, but a few unusual ones that stick out because the couple that I was marrying had never kissed up to the point of their wedding. And the very first kiss was going to be on their wedding day when they were pronounced husband and wife. 
And I remember at the wedding sharing that with those who were attending. And it was like (gasps) a hush and an awe swept through the audience. Why? Because most people do not understand that kind of purity in this day and age. It's foreign to most people. How could they ever do that? That's like outlandish. How did they manage? Hollywood has lied to us. Hollywood has told us that an affair is glamorous. And they've said things like, it's free love. No, it's not. It costs. It will forever cost. There's a huge price you pay. Of course, now people are talking about safe sex. It's all right as long as it's safe sex. Excuse me, what does that mean exactly? I think any sex outside of the parameters of marriage is dangerous. It's not safe. The ramifications, the pain that an affair leaves in its wake lasts a lifetime. Ask couples who have been there. Now, we have to understand when it comes to the area of sexuality that God invented it. It's not like God's against our freedom. He came up with the idea, and it's a good idea. There's nothing wrong with it. He wove it into the fabric of humanity. But because it's God-given, it must also be God-governed. The example I've used on many occasions is it's like beautiful soil. Soil looks good in a garden, not on your rug. Ground into a white carpet, it's out of place. Or like fire. Fire's great in a fireplace. Burning under control, burning hot, adding atmosphere to the room, adding warmth to the family. But take the fire out of the fireplace. Put it up on the couch. Because I want it a little closer. It's my home. I want some freedom here. Great. You'll have a home not for very long. It will burn down. And many a passion has burned out of control and destroyed many lives. Yet, I hear these lame sentiments like, Oh, the Bible's so negative about sexuality. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Well, what if you were to see a sign that said, Keep out danger? You'd probably say, Why? What do they want me to keep out for? What are they hiding? Well, read a little further, buckaroo. It says, danger, do not enter, explosives. Oh. You see, the negative commandment is put there for a positive reason. So that you don't get blown up. J. Allen Peterson calls an affair the myth of the greener grass. Because, he says, most people enter into an affair with that myth that somehow this is going to solve my emotional and relational problems. Whereas, in essence, it is a myth. The grass isn't greener and the problems get worse. Also, just because something is widespread and generally accepted doesn't make it right. Drug abuse is more widespread today than ever before. Doesn't make it right. Speeding is generally accepted as a form of behavior these days. Doesn't make it right. Divorce has become the norm. Doesn't make it right. And sexual immorality, though it's becoming so what, big deal. Free love, safe sex, doesn't make it right. Now, you got to figure that by the time Jesus gets to verse 27, especially verse 28, he makes every guy on that mount uncomfortable by these words. Can't you just picture them all fidgeting a little bit when Jesus gets to this point, checking their watches, 
Of course, they didn't have watches, but they would check them if they did. How long is the Sermon on the Mount going to last anyway? What is he doing? He's peeling away a self-righteous externalism that was so prevalent among so many. Back to verse 20 where he says, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And there were a bunch of smug people who were thinking, Well, I've never murdered anyone. And Jesus will say, Ah, but have you hated them? Then you're a murderer. Or, Oh, I've never committed adultery. Oh, but have you lusted in your heart? Then you are an adulterer. So he's saying these inner thought patterns and motivations of the heart are tantamount to the very action. And no amount of religious, ritual, outward veneer of righteousness will cover that up because I am concerned about the heart. Now, the name of this message is When Sex Becomes a Problem... And if you look in verse 27, we see, first of all, it's an age-old problem. You have heard it was said to those of old. Why? Because as long as man has been on the earth, this has been a problem. Even in the biblical world. Even in the Old Testament, way back when the children of Israel entered into the land of promise, they were in a culture that was soaked in sexual immorality because it was part of the fabric of pagan worship systems. The god Baal was worshipped. The goddess Ashtoreth that we mentioned last week was worshipped by men and women coming up to an altar, a temple, or a grove of trees and having an act of sex as part of the worship of these gods and goddesses. It was an act of fertility, worshipping the gods of fertility. And in Amos chapter 2 there is this reference, Father and Son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in a pledge. Then the New Testament world, the Greek world, that is the background of the New Testament, saw sex as simply a biological function. No moral ramifications. You've got to eat, you've got to drink, you've got to sleep, you've got to have sex. It's just a biological function. And so they even coined their own word for sensual, physical, sexual love. It was the Greek term eros. And of course our culture has taken that and run with it. Using that word erotic films, erotic books. It's the Greek word eros. Interestingly enough, the word eros, the Greek term, is never once found in Scripture. Of all the terms that are used for love, eros is not there. Because originally eros means to grab something that I might satisfy myself, and that is not true love. It's, I'm going to grab something that I might satisfy myself. In the ancient world, adultery was commonplace, much like it is today. In fact, marriage vows more and more by the time of the New Testament were um, not a vow to be held sacred. Demosthenes, the Greek orator, said, quote, We have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. And we have wives for the purpose of having legitimate children, of having a faithful guardian over all of our household affairs. The Greek historian Xenophon claimed it was the husband's aim that a wife, quote, 
might see as little as possible, hear as little as possible, and ask as little as possible. Even the great, so-called great Socrates, the philosopher, asked, Is there anyone to whom you entrust more serious matters than your wife? And is there anyone to whom you talk less? So that is the background, the cultural background, that Jesus is mentioning these things. The commandment, however, the law of Moses, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is no doubt what Jesus is primarily referring to. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. The seventh commandment. It's interesting that in the list of commandments, right after you shall not murder comes you shall not commit adultery. God upholds the sanctity of life and then the sanctity of marriage. Why is that? Because shortly after God created man upon the earth, gave man life, he sanctified marriage. The first institution that God made was not government institution, it was marriage. God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And Adam was there to say, Amen. And the Bible says that God fashioned a woman and brought Eve to Adam. And you know what Adam said when he saw Eve? He said, Wow. He said, Well, I never read that in my Bible. I read in my Bible that Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And haven't you ever thought that's sort of a weird thing to say when you first see a chick? Hey, bone of my bones and flesh of... What is that? Where does that come from? That's because we lose a lot in the translation from the original. A better translation, I am told, is Adam said, Here, now, at last. That's more like it. That's why I said, he said, wow. I think that's kind of close to the original. So God established life, and then God established marriage, and He sanctified it, He sanctioned it. Thus, adultery is to defile God's plan and to render not holy what God has sanctified. I was reading in Reader's Digest about a kid who came back from Sunday school, and you know, kids and lessons, they don't always have the right words, and they don't always pick up on the right pronunciation. And so the son said, Hey, Dad, what does it mean when the Bible says, Thou shalt not commit agriculture. And the father, instead of trying to correct his son, just said, Well, son, it just means that you're not supposed to plow in another man's field. (laughs) I think that's accurate. I think that's a good way of looking at it. It's private territory. Leave it alone. Don't plow in another man's field. Now, of course... The law, according to God, upheld marriage and said, you shall not commit adultery, and there was a penalty for adultery. It was not divorce back then. It was stoning to death. If someone was caught in the act, they would be killed immediately, stoned to death. Now, it's probably a gracious thing that that law is not being upheld today. Imagine. There'd be piles of rocks everywhere. There'd be more funerals than weddings in certain parts of our culture. Yet today, sexual promiscuity outside of marriage, i.e. an affair, adultery, is very fashionable. In fact, Malcolm Muggeridge once said that sex is the substitute religion of our culture. 
the substitute religion. According to a USA Today poll, about a third, 39% of men and 27% of women, who responded to the poll said that they've had an extramarital affair. A third of the nation. And then in another poll, those who admitted to it, the poll said the majority of Americans, 62% of them, think there's nothing morally wrong with the affairs they're having. Excuses like, but we're in love, or, well, it feels good, do it. My point is, Ozzie and Harriet don't live around here anymore. June and Ward Cleaver have long since departed from our culture. And I wish I could say, that's just a problem outside the church, in the world. Never happens in the church. But as a pastor, I've had enough experience to know that's not the case. In fact, you know what the rate is in the church? It's the same as in the world. According to Time Magazine and Christianity Today, about a third will admit to inappropriate sexual behavior or an affair. So it's no secret that God's people are also tempted in this area, hence the commandment. So it's an age-old problem. Secondly, and this is where Jesus gets to the heart of it now, it's not just an age-old problem, it's an internal problem. And this is where the uncomfortable nature of it comes in, verse 28. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why? Because the heart is the soil where the seed of sin begins to grow. And if it begins there, it can sprout when it's full grown into an action. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? Well, the word look is a present participle. It means a continuous action. It's not a glance. It's a gaze. It's checking her out. And then the words to lust, looking to lust. It's the Greek construction, pros ta epithumesai, which means to look toward the goal of lusting, to satisfy an inward desire and passion. I want to satisfy that flaming desire in my heart, so I will look to satisfy to the goal of lusting. Jesus is not speaking about temptation. He's not saying, if you're tempted in this area... You're at fault. Listen, everybody's tempted in this area. Every man has been tempted. Every normal man is tempted in this area. It's universal. It's common to all. When a man sees a woman, a beautiful woman, walk in his path, Satan will use her and use the desire that he has to tempt him with lustful thoughts. What do you do when that happens? Well, you can do a number of things. You can resist the temptation by looking away, changing channels, doing something else, Or you can look to lust. You can dwell on your sight and satisfy the lust. Example, King David. He's out one night walking on his rooftop, thinking about the battle, no doubt. And as he looks over a few houses away, there's a beautiful young woman named Bathsheba. She has no clothes on. She's taking a bath on the rooftop. Now, David could have said, oh, my goodness, and turned around and walked inside. But he didn't. He looked and kept looking. And he started thinking, hey, I'm the king. I can have what I want. And he sent for Bathsheba. And what happened afterwards was simply what was already going on in his heart. He started thinking about it. He started dwelling on it. He looked to lust. That's why I resent certain sex experts like Dr. Ruth Westheimer, who would say, fantasies are okay. 
There's nothing wrong with fantasies. It's only in some mind. And as long as it stays in some mind, it's okay. Excuse me. Hey, the mind is where the battle is fought. It does matter what goes on in your mind because often what goes on in your mind will be acted out later on. That's the battleground. Like the modern proverb that says, sow a thought and you will reap an action. Sow an action and you may reap a habit. And sow a habit and you may reap a character. Sow a character and you may reap a destiny. And perhaps that's what Jesus has in mind. When he says, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. It's better that you lose that than that your whole body perish in hell. Now Job knew exactly where the battle lies in the mind, in the sight, and what you do with the sight. Here's an old, diseased man who also had problems in this area, and he wrote this. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I gaze upon a young woman? We have to be careful what we allow our eyes to see. Because what we see, even after we turn away, what we have seen, we've taken photographs of it. We can display it later on for hours and hours and days and months in our minds. Dr. Victor Klein of the University of Utah said, quote, studies show that pornography is progressive and addictive for many. It can lead to the user acting out his fantasy and often on children. So, guys, none of this, oh, I'm just admiring a beautiful creation of God. I'm just looking at her because God made her. This is a beautiful creation. Hey, you don't look at trees that way. (laughs) You don't look at flowers and rocks and mountains quite the same way. Those are creations of God as well. Now, clearly... Jesus is speaking to men in these verses. Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why does he address men in this area? Well, men have this problem mostly, not always, but mostly. However, let's look at the other side of this. If there weren't Bathsheba's bathing on their rooftops at night, it would sure help. And sometimes gals can dress certain ways and act certain ways to incite a response. They will accentuate a certain part of their body because they know guys will look at it. They want attention. And Arthur Pink said, If lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with the desire to be looked at and lusted after are not less but probably more guilty. In this matter, it is not only too often the case that men sin, but women tempt them to do so. How great then must be the guilt of a great majority of modern misses who deliberately seek to arouse the sexual passions of young men. So watch what you wear, gals. It's an age-old problem. It's an internal problem. And it's a conquerable problem. There is a solution to it all. And Jesus gives it to us. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, what's your response when you hear those words? 
Gross. That's gross. What are you cutting hands off and gouging eyes out? This is sick. I think that's the point. I think Jesus said that to gross you out. So that you would think, you know what? Sin is gross. And sin must be dealt with radically because of its effect. Now, unfortunately, guys like Origen, the early church father from Alexandria, read this particular section and had himself castrated, taking it very, very literally, thinking that's what he must do to avoid temptation in this area. Well, what does Jesus mean by this? First of all, it seems to contradict him. Because if the problem is in the heart, if it's internal, it's in the mind, what the eye sees and entertains in the heart, if that's where the problem lies, then what good does it do to deal with the outward? Why would mutilation help? Also, suppose you gouge out your right eye. Still got your left eye. You can do a lot of checking out with one eye. You cut your right hand off, you still have your left hand to go out and commit acts of evil. Obviously, then, this is to be taken figuratively. Now, you might say, no, I believe it should be literal. Really? Then we expect to see some physical changes in your life coming up here. (laughs) If we see you without an eye next week, we'll know, boy, he believed that verse literally. You see, in Jewish culture... The right hand, the right eye, represents the best, the best vision, the best skills. And the point is that we should deal radically with sin and be willing to give up whatever necessary for the sake of purity. If it's going to draw us closer to the Lord, if it's going to protect us from evil, even the most cherished things that we possess, we should sever them. Notice that Jesus says, if it causes you to sin... Notice that little phrase, causes you to sin. Uh, That speaks originally of a a piece of bait that is put on a stick, kept in a trap. And when the animal hits that bait stick, it causes the trap to be sprung. It's an entrapment. It's a lure. So anything that will morally trap us should be eliminated as soon as possible. I think it's summed up best by Martin Luther. He said, you can't stop birds from flying around your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. What does it mean exactly then? Get rid of entrapments. Put a safe distance between you and that which you know will allure you. For some of you, that means stay away from the magazine racks. When you walk into a store, don't think, okay, I'm just going to walk by the magazine rack. I'm not going to pick one up. I'm just going to walk by. (laughs) Keep a safe distance between you and certain phone numbers between you and certain people that cause a response when you're around them, even an emotional response. Keep an appropriate distance. I once received a letter from a young woman. She said, I come to your church and I have a problem with lust. She goes, when I come, I have lustful thoughts toward you. Would you please... Pray with me. Pray for me. Would you please counsel me what I must do? Here's my phone number. Call and counsel. (laughs) I did three things. First thing I did is tell my wife. Showed her the letter. The second thing I did is give the letter to my secretary and told her to deal with the situation. 
A woman needs to deal with this, not me. And then the third thing I did is tell all of my assistant pastors about the letter. I don't want any gossip or things behind the scene that could come up and bite later. I want to bring it to the surface now. Here's the letter. Notice what's going on. Let's pray for one another. Don't let yourself be a target for the devil's fiery darts. The Bible says flee temptation. Get out of there. Flee. Sever. Joseph did that. Joseph was, you might say, very tempted. I mean, here's a woman, a married woman, who comes up to young Joseph, grabs him, and says, come to bed with me. I would say that's a very affronting temptation. What did he do? He left. He fled. He didn't say, well, well, I don't want to just leave. I don't want to be impolite. Maybe we can just talk. Yeah, let's just, let's just talk about this. No, he got out of there. Well, I don't want to just leave and be a bad witness. Hey, risk it. Run. Many people say they flee temptation, but they simply flee temptation and leave their forwarding address. I resist you, devil. But listen, here's my card, fax number. Anytime, just call me. Hey, don't compromise in this area. Cut it immediately. Maybe you have a relationship with somebody at the office. And you're just talking to that person because this person understands me and my spouse doesn't understand me. It's just platonic. Sever it. Oh, they'll be offended. Tough toast. Sever it anyway. You heard about the bear hunter out with his gun? And he aimed and he saw in his sight a grizzly bear. He was about to pull the trigger. But this grizzly bear, very crafty, very articulate, turned around and said, excuse me, what are you doing pointing the gun at me? So I'm about to pull the trigger and kill you because I want a fur coat. And the bear said, oh, well, all I want is a good meal. Maybe we could negotiate. Put your gun down. Let's talk about it. So off they went into the woods and they came back sort of. The negotiations successful. The bear came back licking his chops. He got his meal and the man got his fur coat in a sense. (laughs) Compromise can destroy you. I want to close with some tips for prevention. Two tips for preventing an affair. You see, there are some people that attract you more than others and you know who they are when you meet them. There's an allurement. Or some sights attract you more than others, and you know what they are when it happens. First of all, realize the damage adultery can do and stop the process. Secondly, realize the potential of a godly marriage and go for it. First one I want to explain. Realize the damage adultery can do and stop. You can damage yourself. You see, there's a thing out there these days called sexually transmitted diseases. And a lot of people who are promiscuous get these things. It can destroy you physically. It can hurt you emotionally. The guilt from the deceit. The anxiety from the hypocrisy. Some people will rationalize and say, well, yeah, this is painful, but I'll just marry this person I'm having an affair with. I'll I'll just get it over and I'll marry this person. After all, we're in love. Statistics prove that marriages built upon an affair are almost doomed for failure because they're built on deceit. They're built on lies. What kind of a foundation is that? Also, it can destroy you spiritually. It'll take away your peace. It takes away your fellowship with God because you're living in sin. It can destroy your family. 
erode trust. Look at the kid's example. Ask David. David committed adultery. What happened? Well, a few things happened. Amnon, his son, raped his half-sister. And then Absalom, in revenge, killed him. All due to that sin. It can also damage others besides. It can damage the church. Paul said, if one member of the church suffers, we all suffer together. Look at it this way. Every obedient Christian strengthens the church. Every disobedient Christian weakens the church. It can also hinder other unbelievers from coming to Christ. Because unbelievers look at Christians who have affairs and they think, what's the difference? Why should I come to Christ? What good did it do for these people? Also, it hurts the heart of God. And why is it that God is usually last to be considered? Oh, don't you know how this hurt your wife and your kids? Of course, but it hurts God. He invented marriage to begin with. That's why David in Psalm 51 said, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and committed this evil in your sight. Because primarily it was a sin against God. And let me say that if God were first to be considered, a lot of this would be prevented. I mean, think about it. If you were to evaluate... Would this affair be the will of God? Oh, come on, that's a no-brainer, right? Purity begins with a commitment to God. Even before a commitment to a spouse. God, I'm walking before you. I've watched skilled carpenters hit nails. It always amazes me. They can pull out this huge 16-penny nail. Is that a sizable nail? I'm acting like I know what I'm talking about here. 16-penny, I want to impress you. I don't even know what that is. They pull out these big nails, and they take one blow, boom, they can hammer it in. And I've asked, how do you do that? He goes, well, first of all, you always keep your eye on the head of the nail, never on the thumb that holds the nail. You know why? You always hit what you watch. And if you're watching Christ day in and day out to please Him, a lot of pain can be avoided. So, realize the damage adultery can do and stop the process. Secondly, realize the potential of a godly marriage and go for it. A godly marriage is an example to other couples. Well, how do I do that? Date your mate. Don't let dating be something that you just win people over with. It's like the great hunt. Now that she has said yes, I don't have to pay any attention to her. Now you keep dating that woman, guys. Go out on dates with your husband, gals. If you lost the spark, put a little lighter fluid in there. Not, you don't want to blow the thing up. You you just want to keep the fire burning. Because marriages don't collapse overnight. It's a long, slow process. Get alone with your spouse, away from the children, in a romantic setting. Try to remember the vows you said to each other. Even if it's sketchy, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, tell death, do us part. Don't forget that part. How about writing a letter to your spouse? And in the letter say, on the day that I married you, these are the feelings that I had as I approached the altar. Get in touch with those again. And then also satisfy each other's needs. That's all under the banner of realizing the potential of a godly marriage and go for it. Satisfy each other's needs. Not just emotionally, but emotionally, certainly, and physically, sexually. It's a commandment of the Scripture. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer 
and then come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And Solomon would say, Amen to that. For he said, Drink water from your own cistern and water from your own well and rejoice with the wife of your youth. So the idea is meet each other's needs emotionally, sexually, so they have no desire to go elsewhere. I want to close with a paragraph written by a great theologian, Helmut Thielicke, in a very practical vein. He said, I once knew a very old married couple who radiated a tremendous happiness. The wife especially, who was almost able to move because of old age and illness, and in whose kind old face the joys and sufferings of many years had etched a hundred lines, was filled with such gratitude for life that I was touched to the quick. Involuntarily, I asked myself what could possibly be the source of this kindly person's radiance. In every other respect, they were common people, and their room indicated only the most modest comfort. But suddenly, I knew where it all came from, for I saw those two speaking to each other and their eyes hanging upon each other. All at once, it became clear to me that this woman was dearly loved. It was not because she was cheerful and pleasant as a person that she was loved by her husband all those years. It was the other way around. Because she was so loved, she became the person that I saw before me. So Abby was right. The only difference in the regard of that man's letter between the only difference between men and animals in that vein is morality. Would you rather live like an animal or like a child of God? Adultery is an age-old problem that always begins in the heart, is controlled by the mind, and sometimes it means we have to sever things immediately and flee temptation quickly to overcome it. Father, our prayer is, is that the marriages of our fellowship would glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would make a commitment to purity to you and then to our spouses. Lord, I pray that we would see the gravity of this, but also understand that sin, no matter what kind of sin, is forgivable. And that if we have sinned, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses a man or a woman from all sin. Thank you, Lord, for your great grace and love. And now, Lord, help us, as Jesus put it in those last two verses, to take sin seriously, not to compromise. In Jesus' name, amen.